Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday morning sessions uh, with Ask the Experts. Uh, we have John back in uh, his usual spot, and we have Dr. Borokov, who's going to give uh, a great presentation on this whole issue of thrombosis and, and COVID and COVID-related. I think she'll give us the, the final, the greatest, and uh, from an expert in this disorder. So I'm so pleased that Donna is able to join us today. Uh, lots of things happening, and I think John is going to touch upon them, including the uh, authorization for children 12 to 15 to get the vaccine. Uh, we are starting uh, on Monday at Connecticut Children's where the high-risk patients are going to be coming in. They uh, should have gotten an email, uh, all your patients, and uh, they can actually log in and schedule fairly easily through my chart. Very, very easy. There are many other sites, many, many other locations that can actually have uh, where the kids can go get vaccinated. Uh, it, it's something that I encourage uh, all the patients to uh, to get all the kids to go ahead and get, you know, get it done. And I'm really uh, remarkably uh, uh, happy that uh, many of the kids are actually pushing to go get vaccinated. In fact, if, if there's some parents are hesitant, the kids are not. I've been really surprised of, you know, how much of an advocate they are for their, for their vaccines. They're not afraid. So that, that is wonderful news. Uh, maybe John will touch upon the, the masking issue. I think I'm sure there's going to be questions at the end of his presentation about the CDC guidelines, and we'll give you some guidelines that we have here for Connecticut children, although obviously everything is evolving as we learn from the science. Uh, so uh, hang in there. We're going to have a, a, a great presentation. Things are changing uh, routinely and daily. Uh, before I ask John to come up, uh, just one, uh, one uh, congratulatory announcement, uh, or two actually. The, you know, this was Nurses Week. Uh, thank you to our nurses for everything they do. Uh, you're tremendous. You're terrific. You've been real heroes during this pandemic. And the other one is congratulations to the UConn medical students who uh, graduated last Saturday. Uh, they did it outside at the Rensselaer field. And uh, again, uh, you know, just a, a great class and of kids. Uh, three of them are coming our way for pediatric residency and we're very proud of them. So congratulations to you, UConn medical students. John. Thank you, Juan. And uh, good morning, everyone uh, from Connecticut and Massachusetts and other states. Uh, was a lot to cover this morning, and I'm really looking forward to our second talk today on the whole issue of COVID and thrombosis. So I think you're going to be very interested in the next hour. Um, there is a lot going on this week, and I'll do my best to touch a number of issues for you. Now, in the United States, um, that small resurgence we had is fading, and the new cases are dropping, although still 30,000. It's not gone. And it's one thing I want to stress to everyone, this is a marathon and we are in the last couple of miles, but the race isn't done yet. So I think we all need to take a deep breath. Hospitalizations are down, but still in the thousands and thousands across the country. So wonderful news, but tempered by the fact that COVID is still pulsing through the United States. It's not gone. Now the death rate's gone down and I, I think this is a tremendous tribute to the immunization efforts across the United States. I showed you yet last week, we've done very well in immunizing our elderly and high risk across the country. That's reflected in our blunted death rates that continue to decline. This is very good news and a success for us. Connecticut, um, community spread is dropping. The number of new cases has dropped sharply. Uh, great news, um, and it, it, again, a reflection of, I think, consistency in our public health messaging from the governor and DPH and the immunization success in this state. And I live across the border in Massachusetts. If only we were as successful as Connecticut. You'll remember last week, this was all red. 
and you can see community spread across our townships are dropping. The test positivity, I had you, I see I showed last week's 2%, test positivity is now 1.05% this week. So we're really getting to uh, uh, that great place of getting to sort of 10 per 100,000 or below and a test positivity rate of 1% or less. Not quite there yet, but getting close. A big improvement in the decrease of community spread. Hospitalizations are in steep decline across the state. Uh, there's still a few hundred, but it's much, much less than it was during the winter. Now, I wanna say, I do think this reflects two things. It's across the country. I think it reflects the fact that immunizations are, are really moving out there, but it also reflects the weather change and we're moving more outdoors and there's less indoor crowding. So I think um, it is now is the time as the weather gets warm, now is the time to take advantage and immunize our population so that when we hit the winter, we'll have, a, we'll have that immunity we need across the population so we don't get that spike that we had last winter. Mortality, very low in Connecticut now. You can count them on one hand. It's a good place to be. And I think, again, a reflection of the tremendous immunization successes. And here it is. I actually did a screenshot from the DPH briefing on Monday. Um, this is one dose, but almost 90% of 75 and above. And you can see across um, a tremendous success in getting above 50% coverage um, for uh, immunizations in the state of Connecticut. Um, quite remarkable. And 3.4 million doses have been administered, and there's 3 million in the state. 2 million first doses, 1.4 million second doses. So um, we need to get all those second doses done, but tremendous progress. And if you look at our, our uh, deficiency in immunization and where we need to focus, Look at our age groups, 55 and above, we've got 70% of that cohort in Connecticut immunized completely. But if you look on the far right, and I guess I have a little, here we go, you'll see that 16 to 17, only 23% are fully immunized and we're launching to 12 now. So we have work to do in the young adult group, 30, I'd say 35 and above where it's below 50% fully vaccinated. We just have to get those people immunized. The United States has administered 261 million doses. And by the way, I, there were a number of questions during the week I received, and I'm sure we'll get them today, from parents saying, well, it's an emergency use authorization. I'm going to give it to my child. I'm uncomfortable. And I, I look at it and I say, look, that's technically true. But this vaccine has had the largest field trial, and certainly in my lifetime, of any vaccine. We've given over 250 million doses in a year, and it's tremendously efficacious and with mild side effects. And I think that's as good a field trial you will get for any vaccine in vaccine history. And I can look, I think we can look parents in the eye and say, look, you know, it's been given to 250 million Americans, probably okay for a 12 to 15 year old. So, uh, but tremendous um, progress. Unfortunately, only 35% of the country is fully vaccinated, but we're around 50% have gotten at least one dose of the RNA vaccines. And so, We've got to, I'd love this to be around 50% fully vaccinated. I'll, I would relax a little bit more. The deaths are way down, and this is important data. They're way down for all ethnic groups and races. And I think if you notice here, during our peak in the winter, the highest mortality were actually for Native Americans and Latinos, and African Americans come next. And I think if you look down at our reduction in mortality in May, it's gone down for everyone. 
great news, and we have work to do in immunizations, but it shows particularly, I think, the vulnerable elderly and, and high-risk population. I think we've probably reached herd immunity in that group, and you'll see a reflection in the drop in death rates across all ethnicities and races in the United States. Very good news. That was not true. As you see in January, you can see we were not doing well. So big improvement. Good news. Other good news, the FDA authorized the Pfizer vaccine for adolescents 12 to 15, and Moderna, I believe, is applying in a few weeks for the same authorization. Now, I want to run through the data because we're going to need to look parents in the eye and say, these are the data. I showed you 260 million Americans have gotten the vaccine without a lot of problems. But if you look at, they, they looked at the immune response of a subgroup, it was given to 2,000 kids. A thousand got placebo, a thousand got the vaccine. Thank you to those families who volunteered. And they looked at the immune response, which was quite robust in these teenagers. They made very good um, uh, antibody titers and, and uh, it was quite remarkable actually. And, um, but more importantly, if you look at, uh, and, and oh, by the way, there were 16 cases in the placebo group of COVID and zero cases in the vaccine group showing 100% efficacy a remarkably effective vaccine. And side effects, if you look here, uh, pain, oh, let's go back, uh, pain and in the injection site, uh, they didn't feel good after the second dose, very similar to um, adole older adolescents, 16 and adults. So again, looking at the FDA data and then telling our parents what the data show will be very critical moving ahead and the data were very good. ACIP also issued some new guidelines that are going to be very important as we push these vaccines out into the practices. Co-administration with other vaccines is probably fine. Go ahead and do it. I think this is critical because we've looked at the data show that in adolescents, meningococcal vaccine, HPV, and a couple of other vaccines, oh, uh, tetanus, uh, TTAP, are lagging by millions of doses. There are no data to show interference. And so the ACIP came ahead and recommended that go ahead and administer other vaccines without regard to timing so we can catch up and we won't have outbreaks of meningitis and other things that come later in the summer and the fall. So very important um, new suggestions and guidelines. And as we push this out to the practices, I think this will be very helpful in catching up in our immunizations in our children. The pandemic, unfortunately, is not done. And I keep stressing that. And, and I, I, again, I have some nervousness about the, sort of the media drum of everything's coming back to normal. You'll see across the world, India in serious trouble still. And actually, the outbreak in India is now spread into Southeast Asia. Some of those countries are having problems now. South America it has been in serious challenges uh, with this. And in fact, Uruguay, which is a black dot below Brazil, is one of the more advanced countries in South America, and they have a terrible COVID outbreak right now, despite having good infrastructure. They're under-immunized. And so uh, my point about Uruguay is even with good infrastructure and relative wealth, this can come roaring back. And I think in the United States, we've got to be very cautious moving forward to prevent that. So uh, a sobering um, view of the rest of the world. Now, I want to focus, you'll see a black area up in Scandinavia. I want to focus on that for a moment. That would be Sweden. Sweden has a huge outbreak. And in my mind, you know, you may remember Sweden early on said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to protect our elderly and everybody can just do what they want. And we'll have herd immunity. It'll all work out. Well, it didn't work out. 
They, they actually have very high death rate in their elderly. And in fact, here we are in May of 2021, and they're having an enormous outbreak. You can see it's 47 new cases per 100,000, uh, where the arrow is, and you can see their curves, and they're under immunized. So I, I think, unfortunately, enough people in Sweden did not get infected to create herd immunity, and now they're in trouble. They're, they're having another outbreak. So I don't think that strategy was correct. I'm glad we did not do it in the United States. I don't think it's working out for them. You can see, by the way, that spread into Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, countries that have close ties to Sweden, and, and, and it's sort of spilling into the other parts of the EU now, a real problem. Worldwide immunization also has a long way to go. The United States stands out with England and a couple of other countries as having done very well. That said, a lot of the rest of the world is under immunized, and this is gonna to continue to generate new variants some of which may be resistant to vaccination. It is our, I think, in our national interest and our moral obligation to try to get vaccine out to the rest of the world as fast as we can. And I, I know we're making some strides on that, but we have a long way to go. Wild cards, in my mind, moving ahead. We're, we're in the last couple of miles of this marathon. We have rapid spread of variants that require more neutralizing antibody than original strains. It doesn't mean the vaccines aren't effective still. It just means there's more neutralizing antibody required. Now, I worry that could mean you'll have breakthrough infections as immunity wanes, perhaps earlier with the variants than with the regular strains. We have vaccine hesitancy encouraged by the um, uh, political nature uh, that people have thrown public health measures into, and I think very intense anti-vaccine rhetoric I did touch that um, last week. I'm going to talk a little bit about more about that later. And also um, the efforts, as I mentioned, to control the epidemic in the rest of the world is going to need to accelerate or this will come back across the United States. So these are some wild cards in, our, I think, our future pandemic control. The variants are spreading in the United States. This, for example, is 1351, which is the South African lineage. It's now all across the country. And, you know, right now we seem to be managing it well, having getting critical mass of people immunized. But to me, I look at this and I feel a sense of urgency, particularly looking at the Southeast, of getting our immunizations done because this strain requires more neutralizing antibody to, to be protected. The Pfizer works, Moderna works so far, but um, I worry about this. And ditto, this is the P1 Brazilian lineage, which is less spread, but still all across the country now, also requires more neutralizing antibody. And so um, this is gonna continue. I don't know where we are with the strain from India um, and others, but to me, this creates a sense of urgency to continue our immunization um, efforts and not to back off and say, take our masks off, we're all done. We are not. There's limited data as to the efficacy of vaccines against the new variants, but so far, particularly the Pfizer vaccine looks good. Now, this is a study looking um, against the B117, B1351 and Cutter, and you can see Pfizer was 75% effective against clinical illness in the South African strain in a field trial in Cutter, which is, I think, good data. You'll see that the J&J &J vaccine was only 52% in South Africa in a field trial where most of the cases were the 1351 variant. I worry about that figure. Novavax, ditto in South Africa, about 50% effective, but quite good against the UK strain and others. And the AstraZeneca vaccine, in my opinion, 
will probably fade from the background of vaccines being given worldwide. There's a lot of reluctance to use it. I, I don't, in my opinion, I'm not sure that's going to fly in other in the rest of the world now. So, um, you know, right now Pfizer is looking pretty good against the the um, variants that it's been tested against in field trials, but we'll have to watch carefully. And this is an interesting slide. You know, when do you need that booster shot? This is from the CDC during the ACIP presentations. They presented some other things. And what, what, what they're looking at is, what is the protective margin of neutralizing antibody? And we don't really know. But we do know is that protective margin increases for the variants. And so this is being watched closely and the correlates of protection, trying to understand what's the threshold where you can say, aha, now we got to have the booster. We really don't know yet, but I do think the CDC is starting to follow that closely to figure out when are we going to need, you know, that protective margin to be moved up and the booster shots that cover particularly the E484K mutation on the spike protein, which is the South African, the original South African one. Other very interesting new data I want to share with you. A lot of questions about uh, pregnancy and immunization and probably gets in the breast milk. And well, now we know it gets in the breast milk. This is, these are some new data showing first off, if the mother is infected, uh, there's robust secretory IgA detected in human milk. And this is the, oop, let me get back. This is the hypothesis of how this is happening about four to a few weeks post-infection, they start seeing antibody spikes in the milk of IgA, and you show a progression of how the immune system is activated, the B cell stimulation, and then secretory IgA produced and gets in the breast milk with native infection. We, we sort of suspected that. Now, with immunization, there are new data showing the same thing happens. This is great news, I think, You'll see here um, after the second dose in uh, women uh, who, who we then measured the IgA level in the breast milk after immunization with the RNA vaccine, there was a lot of secretory IgA in the breast milk. So now we know that immunization will also induce IgA in the breast milk, which in, uh, most people will feel would protect your newborn baby. Good news for us to transmit to women thinking about getting immunized during pregnancy. Menstruation, I got a number of emails from nurses in schools uh, over the last week or so saying they've anecdotally noticed after immunizing a 16-year-old that the, the, the um, women then came back to them and said, you know, my menstrual cycle was disrupted. These are anecdotal reports. Uh, I, I'm very appreciative of the nurses out in the community bringing this to my attention. I did some, as much research as I could on this. What, what we're seeing are anecdotal reports of transient post-vaccine menstrual disruptions. So, you know, we don't know if it's vaccine-related or is there something else going on. There's been no randomized trial to understand this. And right now, it's not described in the vaccine safety profile. It's not there. However, you could think maybe, you know, there's a vigorous immune response. It's possible that could give a stress-mediated uh, response that could disrupt cycles. Or is it just coincidence? It has nothing to do with the immunization. There are no data yet. I'm pretty confident it will come out in post-vaccine surveillance if this does happen. But I did find one interesting paper from China back in January where they noticed native infection of women of childbearing age in China 
had menstrual disruption if they had severe COVID. And it was, a, it was, a, it was around, you can look down here, um, around 20% had a prolonged cycle uh, and decreased volume and there were changes. They looked at sex hormones, which were not changed and they hypothesize it could be the stress of illness or the cytokines or whatever. So we do know from this small report, which had no statistics and was not randomized, but this all I could find that native infection with COVID-19 could potentially disrupt menstrual cycles. So I wanted to get that out to you. I had a number of questions from the community on this this week. Uh, antibody responses, oh, immunocompromised, very little data. Here's the first I could find just came out they gave the vaccine to or solid organ transplants. And the, the graph shows it's just all over the place. Just look at the orange dots. Some made good antibody. We think they're immune. Others didn't make any antibody. And they correlated the low antibody produced producers, particularly in solid organ transplant patients who had anti-metabolite immunosuppression. So anti-metabolite immunosuppression is going to put you in this low immune response category. So we're starting to get data to understand more about our immunosuppressed population response to the vaccine. I do have to comment. I did get a couple of comments last week that I was getting political. And, and um, I, I'm going to, this is my response to that. Um, public health officials during a pandemic have an obligation. I'm not an official, public health doctors have an obligation to call out disinformation and promulgation of non-data-based opinions that will hurt or kill people. It's not a declaration of political preference. You don't know what my political preference is. It's a declaration that I think when you say that masks in children are child abuse and that vaccination is bad, that can hurt people. And I'm gonna call that out. That's all I did. The best way to end this pandemic is to practice good public health prevention, masks and hand-washing and vaccination. This strategy has been successful. This is factual. That will work when you tell people not to do it. We will prolong the pandemic. Immunization works and is much safer than getting infected with SARS-CoV-2. And it's our obligation to use multiple strategies to encourage our public to become immunized, not to encourage them not to get immunized. So I did want to put that out there. I don't think this is political. I think this is all about ending the pandemic and using good public health responses to do so. All right, the good, the bad, the ugly, pandemic year two, May, 2021. Mostly good news. Our immunizations are continuing. Sure, they've fallen off, but you know, it's over a million a day. Connecticut has outstanding immunization levels. Community spread is rapidly declining. The USA resurgence appears to have ended and, and we're moving to a better place, but there are more variants across the world and they may cause breakthrough infections and large sections of the US are under immunized. The worldwide pandemic is continuing and vaccine hesitancy in the US is impeding herd immunity, which might not be attainable. We can talk about the mask uh, bulletin from the CDC in our question and answer. I'm very excited now to hear our next speaker talk about COVID and thrombosis. Thank you. Great update. And uh, now we're going to move on very um, quickly to uh, Dr. Borokov. She'll talk about thrombosis and COVID infection. Donna? Thank you. Um, good morning. I'm Donna Borokov, one of the pediatric hematologists here. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about thrombosis, both with COVID-19 infection as well as vaccination that we have seen in the news. Um, 
One of the main things that I want to stress is the importance of thinking about thrombosis. This is a diagnosis that is not always straightforward and often quite rare and can be unusual in presentation. And if you don't think about the diagnosis, you'll miss the diagnosis. Um, so I wanted to start out with sort of a general overview of how do we think about the pathogenesis of blood clots and one's risk for forming blood clots. Um, so I'll go back to our, our old friend Virchow's triad that we all learned about in school. So it's the idea that there are three factors leading to increased risk of forming a blood clot, endothelial injury, stasis, and hypercoagulable state. Um, so in terms of endothelial injury with COVID-19 infection, intravascular catheters certainly cause injury to the endothelium. There is some evidence that there's a direct invasion of the endothelial cells by the SARS-CoV-2 virus that leads directly to cell injury. There's also complement-mediated endothelial injury, as well as the acute systemic inflammatory response leading to cytokines and acute phase reactants. Um, also in COVID-19 infection, we do see a hypercoagulable state with an increase in the prothrombotic factors, elevated factor eight and fibrinogen. We see elevations of D-dimer and circulating prothrombotic microparticles uh, leading to hyperviscosity and it becomes a vicious cycle, uh, increasing one's risk of forming a clot. As well, stasis always plays a role in one's risk of forming blood clots. Everyone who's sitting down now, please do some ankle rolls and move your muscles a little bit to keep our blood flowing. Thank you, Juan. <laughs> Um, so what happens with COVID-19? Early in the pandemic, we were starting to see reports of an extraordinarily high rate of thrombosis in patients. Up to one third of ICU patients, even who were treated with prophylactic anticoagulants, were suffering from um, really impressive thrombosis. VTE is venous thromboembolism, extensive DVT, deep vein thrombosis, as well as pulmonary embolism. Um, it was higher, the rates were higher in patients with medical comorbidities such as obesity, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and diabetes mellitus. So when this happened, when these reports were coming out, we were very concerned and um, many medical societies made recommendations for increased awareness and diagnosis and prevention of thromboembolism. So th throughout this pandemic, we have seen a, a marked decline in the VTE rates. Um, reports now are between 7 and 13% in ICU patients. We believe this is because of improved medical care of patients with COVID-19 infection, as well as this use of newer therapies directed at the virus and at the resulting inflammation. Um, in non-ICU inpatients, the rates of thromboembolism range from 3 to 6%, and in outpatients, we do have limited data. Um, so everything that I'm talking about today is mainly adult uh, data because we don't have specifics for children with uh, COVID-19 infection. Um, so what, what do we know about the hypercoagulability in COVID-19 infection? What do we, one of the main things that we do to prevent and treat it is we do some routine testing of all of our inpatients with COVID-19, regardless of their clinical status. We do a CBC, including platelets, coagulation studies, PTPTT, D-dimer, and fibrinogen. Um, an important point is that treatment is not based on any one lab value alone. It's important to do repeat testing and trend 
the values and to look at the entire patient and their signs and symptoms and use the, the big picture, the clinical features to guide their management. If you do suspect a blood clot, um, the recommended, the imaging is um, recommended, whether it's by um, ultrasound of an extremity, brain MRI, um, or the, the area of concern. Um, so, as I said, many of these medical societies do have uh, guidelines for hypercoagulability management in COVID-19 and what can we do to prevent clots in these patients. And we did develop a pathway here at Connecticut Children's. Um, so this is a SNP from our in e emergency department and inpatient COVID-19 algorithm. And this lists um, all of those baseline labs that we get. Uh, regardless of how a patient is presenting, we do get the blood work because it might give us a clue of more to look at. Uh, we also have a clinical pathway that is COVID-19 venous thromboembolism prevention clinical pathway. And a uh, major point is it serves as a guide and does not replace clinical judgment. So again, you have to look at the big picture of the patient and everything that is going on. Um, and I would like to note that we have a clinical pathway in general for VTE prevention that is coming out soon. Um, we have a great team that's been among disciplines that's been working on uh, putting that together and it does align with a lot of the things that are in this COVID-19 specific. Um, so you may see in EPIC that our nurses do a VTE assessment. You'll see here. Um, there is, so this pathway has an appendix, appendix A, that lists a lot of different risk factors for forming a blood clot. Risk factors such as being in the ICU, uh, having recent surgery, um, having an active malignancy, family history of clotting, a long list of different risk factors. Um, so our nurses do perform an assessment in EPIC and there's a scoring system and then a BPA will fire to the providers to say, hey, think about um, blood clots and should you be doing something for this patient to prevent them having a blood clot? Um, so I wanna call your attention to the bottom two diamonds here um, in this pathway. So if you have a patient with uh, altered mobility, risk factors or they're COVID-19 positive, these are inpatients, we generally would recommend uh, anticoagulation prophylaxis with prophylactic uh, low molecular weight heparin. Um, then on this last side is a patient who is sicker, COVID-19 in the ICU with a markedly elevated D-dimer, perhaps over a thousand and other issues. You might begin therapeutic anticoagulation even before you have evidence of a blood clot. Um, to because of such the, the high risk of forming a blood clot. Uh, this is a similar guide. This is from up to date, and I thought it was just a nice uh, summary. And also pointing out that outpatients routine testing is not required. Um, and the for VTE prophylaxis, there were some studies early on comparing. Dosing, should you do the routine prophylactic dosing? There was an intermediate dose or should you just do treatment dose for everyone? And there was no difference reported pretty much between those three. So usually we would do routine um, prophylactic dosing. So in children, the metabolism of low molecular weight heparin is different than in adults and we monitor it more closely. So we also have, um, there's the anticoagulation 
protocol and pathway that is linked to our um, our um, protocol. So there's a lot of information there on the internet. Um, this is also from up to date, and I put this up here as to to say that we still do if we need to do thrombolytic therapy with TPA, or if a patient needs a heparin drip, we do the same management that we would even if someone if someone does have COVID. Um, so what is are the important things in treatment of uh, the hypercoagulability in COVID-19? Prophylaxis, prophylaxis, prophylaxis. We often, uh, we are trying to advocate for our students, I mean our patients, and we don't want to give shots. We um, we don't want them to cry, uh, but it is crucial to uh, prevent to prevent clots. So uh, more and more of our patients are getting prophylactic uh, Lovenox, and it is a tricky thing because it is such a rare event, especially in children. It's hard to know the benefit that you are doing, but um, it certainly is is of of benefit to do prophylaxis. In certain cases, you might consider post-discharge prophylaxis. Aspirin is continued for typical indications that it's that it's given for. Um, so next, uh, this was an interesting story about thrombosis and COVID-19 vaccines. So I know uh, there's been a lot in the news and we've all heard a lot about this and getting a lot of questions from our patients about thrombosis and COVID-19 vaccine. So to sort of summarize the story, in February of this year, the AstraZeneca vaccine, we started getting reports about a prothrombotic prothrombotic syndrome associated with the use of that vaccine. In February 27th, um, the FDA issued emergency use authorization of the J&J &J vaccine, which is an adenovirus vector vaccine. Um, you'll recall that the Pfizer and Moderna, the M mRNA uh, vaccines were given that use in December. So in April 13th, 2021, the FDA and the CDC recommended a pause because there were six cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis uh, in patients who had gotten the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So the data was then um, reviewed by the Advisory Committee on Immunization, immunization Practices. Um, so the data that they had available is looking at the um, adverse events that were reported as well as vSAFE, so, which is that um, the, reporting, uh, the reporting that we um, had on our phones after we got the shots. So after that, all of that data was reviewed um, on April 23rd, the FDA and CDC recommended resuming use of the J&J &J vaccine. In March and April, uh, almost 8 million doses of the J&J &J vaccine have been given, and there were 18 reported cases of um, thrombosis. So quite a low, um, a low incidence of, the, of that complication. So part of this pause was, number one, to investigate the safety and try to figure out the patterns of what had happened, and number two, to describe what are what what is this syndrome? What is happening? And um, get the word out to the community, to physicians, to be on the on the alert for any of these complications. So this syndrome has gone by some different names: VITT, vaccine-induced thrombos thrombotic thrombocytopenia, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome (TTS), 
vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia, VIPIT. So it's clotting with a low platelet count. Um, so VITT, the vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, similar to some syndromes that are well-known. So HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, is um, classically seen five to 10 days after a heparin exposure, and patients will present at that time with thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. There's also a spontaneous HIT syndrome that typically follows infection, and it looks like this VITT is similar to the spontaneous HIT syndrome. Um, these patients can also present with DIC, um, disseminated intravascular coagulation, where thrombus is using up the clotting factors and you get decreased fibrinogen and platelets with bleeding. Um, so in VITT, there are antibodies to the platelet factor 4, which is also known as CXCL4, and this platelet activation stimulates the coagulation system, seems to be triggered by this adenoviral vector COVID-19 vaccine, and it is an IgG class that's diagnosed on ELISA assays. Um, so in terms of incidence, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, an earlier study in Norway, incidence of about 1 in 26,000. When the CDC reviewed data, incidents above one in 533,000. Uh, what was interesting was there seemed to be a predominance in young women getting this, uh, having this complication. We're not exactly sure why. Uh, it is not associated with uh, use of certain hormonal therapies. Nothing has really um, panned out yet exactly of why certain people are at more risk, but it's, it's thought that perhaps there's an autoimmune mechanism at play and females are, are more likely to get these autoimmune disorders. The other um, thought is perhaps, especially in Europe, was it young, uh, younger female health work care workers who are getting this vaccine? Um, and another uh, postulate is that a younger population was getting the J&J &J vaccine since the mRNA vaccines were available earlier for older people. Um, so this uh, VITT, a way to remember when you, when, when would you diagnose this? V, the vaccine is given. So the person got an adenoviral vector-based interval. This syndrome is typically seen five to 30 days post-vaccine. T for thrombosis all sorts of venous or arterial thrombosis. Uh, more, the, what really um, ticked off the, uh, the investigation further was that there were some unusual sites of, of venous thrombosis with several cerebral venous sinus thrombosis presenting with clotting with or without intracerebral hemorrhage, uh, splanchnic vein thrombosis presenting with abdominal pain as well as pulmonary embolism. And then the second T, thrombocytopenia. So median platelet counts of 20 to 25, typically with minor bleeding symptoms of bruising and petechiae. So to summarize thrombosis in the COVID-19 vaccine, the risk of thrombosis is exceedingly rare and it is much lower than with COVID-19 infection. So the recommendation is certainly for vaccination, uh, even for people who are at increased risk of forming a blood clot. There is a caveat with the J&J &J to use uh, with caution in women age 18 to 49, um, but it still can be given. And the prompt diagnosis and treatment of the complications is what is what's really important. So some of our unanswered questions about this vaccine-induced ITP um, 
what is the epidemiology of the syndrome? Who is, who is at risk of getting it? Why do we see this syndrome with the COVID adenoviral vaccine? And it's not seen with other adenoviral vaccines that have been developed. Um, the Ebola vaccine, it was not seen. And why does it seem that there are more unusual locations of thrombi and we're not seeing reports of DVTs in the legs? We're seeing more the sinus, uh, these unusual uh, spots or um, locations for thrombi. So, in summary, please look at all those pathways, take a, a look through them and think about thrombus, think about clotting, because um, that's the only way we can diagnose it, prevent it and treat it. Um, any, we can move on to questions. Thank you, uh, Donna, uh, really appreciate it. Well, you're up there. Uh, we have a couple of questions for you. So the, uh, from Dr. Zellneritis, uh, it's a comment and uh, perhaps a question. As CVT has been a problem as far as, back, uh, as far back as we know. It was common with chronic undertreatment of otitis in the past. There's a spike every year with the flu vaccine. These realities seem to have escaped recognition in the pathologic concern about SARS-CoV-2 virus vaccine. Um, and so any question about that? I mean, is, I, I can't remember seeing thrombus with, with a flu vaccine, but uh, your thoughts? No, I don't. I um, I don't remember with flu vaccine seeing anybody. He do, it does bring up a good point of you have to think of the diagnosis in order to make it. But you're saying the CVT has been a, it's a common problem that's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. so then, all right, very very good. Um, all right, John, I have a, a number of questions for you. Thank you, Donna. From John Pitigoff, uh, two questions. Transmission of those who have been vaccinated uh, as have patients, families in this category. So uh, additionally, vaccination after COVID positive or exposure, the time frame. I think the, um, it looks like, and this goes back to data we, I think we've looked at a few months ago. So far, it seems if you're immunized, there's around a 70% plus reduction in the likelihood of transmission. It's pretty good. It's not 100%. So I think most experts feel that there's a very significant reduction in, in the chance of acquisition and transmission if you're immunized. It's one of the reasons the CDC came out with their new recommendations. So uh, again, family is the same. If the family's immunized, uh, uh, li less likelihood of acquiring and transmitting COVID. Much yeah. less likelihood. Yeah, and I think there were two two articles published, one in The Lancet recently. We looked, we looked at uh, the even if a virus is detected, it's probably not viable, and it can't it can't be transmitted. So yeah, if you, if you use the number eighty percent, I I sort of stick with that. Those were some of the original studies, and Juan talked about new data showing even if you're PCR positive, uh, it's going to be very low titer. So right now, a transmission in immunized acquisition and transmission in fully immunized is unlikely, but not zero. John, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about the CDC uh, mask uh, recommendations? Yeah, with the outdoor suggestion, I think it's warmer. We're outdoors. Uh, I, I, the airflow is great. Immunizations are more. So I, I thought it was very reasonable. I think indoor, in, in my opinion, um, I, I might have had a more nuanced uh, policy and gone by geographic success and immunization. I look at Connecticut. You know, if we get up, we have 70% of high risk or immunized, we're kind of moving up pretty quickly to maybe have uh, the adult population and the adolescent population pretty highly immunized. Those sort of suggestions of taking your mask off indoors make sense. I think if you're in other parts of the United States, for example, and by the way, our community spread is down 
and we're at one percent new positivity. I mean, I'm I'm getting comfortable. Maybe in Connecticut that makes sense. If you look at Michigan, huge community spread still immunization spotty by county. I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with that. Mississippi would be another example. So in my view, I think each geography has to look at their community spread and their immunization rates and and the decision about masking and unmasking indoors could be a little more data-based. But that's just my opinion. I do think the CDC uh, is trying to create an atmosphere where people say, oh my gosh, I got to get immunized because I can move back to more normal life. And I understand that, and I fully support that uh, that quest. Donna, a question for you, and uh, then we'll come back to John after that. Um, this is from Dr. Lau. There's now uh, in adult literature that lu- there's literature that lupus anticoagulant is frequently seen in COVID-19 patients. Could this be contributing to the thrombosis in these patients? Should we look into this? Um, it's a good question. I know. Um we've, it, it, it kind of leads into also the question of increased bleeding with uh, COVID-19 infection or vaccination. It's hard to know what is, uh, what is related, but um, that is part of the reason of routine checking of the PT-PTT and in outpatients who had complaints. I think that is looking at the lupus anticoagulant is something we'd be looking at too. Yeah, and a comment from one of your colleagues from Dr. Isakovs is that the risk of COVID infection related thrombosis is 27,000 times more likely than the risk of thrombosis from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yes, true. Okay, and, it, and then just to... Still exceedingly, exceedingly rare with the J&J vaccine. Yeah, and in fact, we have a patient now that we're looking into post-COVID thrombosis, which can be pretty serious and devastating. And if you had to do two tests, when they, if somebody comes in with thrombosis post-vaccine, what would be those two tests? So the CBC and their D-dimer. Okay. Um, and if they're thrombocytopenic, then you would be... Thrombocytopenic, you're really going to be worried about this VITT uh, syndrome. So we haven't, there certainly is a chance that we in our hospital could get an 18, 19, 20-year-old with other risk factors presenting with this. Thrombocytopenic with a thrombosis, you wouldn't use, you would not use heparin. So we would not use heparin and we would use, uh, IVIG is used actually, similar to how we treat ITP. Um, the idea is that you're giving immune globulin to block that abnormal immune response. Thank you. John, you're back on. So this is important to address, and, uh, and thank, you, uh, thank you, Andrea, for your, your comments and, and for always keeping us uh, on our toes. And uh, Andrea says, first and foremost, these sessions have become a major lifeline to all of us during this horrendous year for the world, and we're forever thankful to you for doing all that you have done to lessen the burden for so many of us, and I appreciate that. Um, however, the presentations, although scientific, have also been skewed at times politically. It is appreciated that you recognize this to some degree, but not to call out the porous southern borders and obviously responsible mitigation strategy and to concentrate only on mass handwashing is negligent and puts citizens at unnecessary risk for COVID. John? Um, thank you for the question. So I, I do want to say um, we've not been political, which is why I would not address the immigration policies of the United States. I, I don't think that's our role. Uh, we've been very consistent. What my suggestion is twofold. I think people coming into the United States should be tested for COVID. And that is the policy, by the way, if you hop on an airplane and however you come to the United States, you should be tested for COVID. And if you're positive, you obviously need to be quarantined for 10 days. And, and uh, to me, that we've been very consistent suggesting that. I don't think it's any different if you came from the southern border, you got on a plane from Sweden where there's terrible COVID right now. Same, you know, we should test and we should quarantine. 
I think the other way to manage it, and I've mentioned this several times, is let's immunize the rest of the world. So let's get our vaccines out to South America and Europe and India, and let's try to get this pandemic under control in the rest of the world. I think that will be the most effective way of preventing new strains from coming into the United States. So I think we have tried to answer this question uh, pretty consistently, uh, but I will stay out of uh, the political discussion of immigration. It's just not my role. Thank you. Uh, John, uh, CDC's recommendation of no mask for immunized individuals, even if even in indoor settings, assumes two things. The existing vaccines are effective against the variants, and there's a way to verify immunization status in public areas. Neither is true based on current data. So the risk of a vaccinated individual being exposed to a variant from a non-vaccinated person is getting sick from it is real. Any comments? Well, first off, I would say so far, I showed you the data with Pfizer and Moderna is similar they're actually pretty good against the variants. So I would say uh, our comfort zone, as we learn more and more about the clinical, this giant clinical trial we're doing with the RNA vaccines, they are working against most of the variants that we've known so far. So I think I would have more of a comfort level answering your question with that. And I, I share your, you know, I, I would agree. I think again, as I mentioned, where there's low community spread and high immunization rates, I'm quite comfortable with the CDC recommendation. Connecticut's a great example. I think when you're talking about other states where there's, there's a lot of hot spots and immunizations are, have fallen behind, I'm a little less comfortable taking my mask off indoors and I would continue to wear a mask. Personally, I will say, um, since I'm in the high risk category, I am immunized, but it's six months old, I will probably wear a mask uh, indoors just because I think that would prevent me being exposed to an active COVID case with no protection, which probably would not be in my interest. And I'd probably suggest the same thing in a nursing home. You know, probably we're gonna to need to continue to be very cautious. Um, but I think for the general public in a state like Connecticut, where you've really got crushed community spread over the next, hopefully the next couple of weeks continues, immunizations are probably among the best in the United States. The CDC recommendations may start making pretty good sense. So I would go by geography. My opinion, in no way, uh, you know, do I speak for the state of Massachusetts or Connecticut or the CDC. Yeah, um, as it relates to the medical center at, at Connecticut Children's, we will continue to recommend the use of masks in the building at 282, and we'll have to make recommendations for the non-clinical areas. Um, and the CDC did say healthcare environments, doctor's offices, everyone should be wearing a mask and protection still. They were quite clear on that. Yep. Um, John, if, um, if you were making the decision, when would you lift the van on faculty travel to professional meetings? Great question. Um, I guess, again, it depends where the meeting would be. Um, you know, if the meetings uh, in Connecticut uh, in a convention center in a state where 70% of the people are immunized and community spread is very, very low, not unreasonable. I think if you're going to Houston, I'm not so sure. So I, I, again, I think it depends on how the United States overall begins to crush this pandemic as our immunizations rate go up, community spread drops. I do think that is going to happen. Today, not quite ready yet. I think if we continue our immunizations you know, trajectory, and the United States continues to stay on top of this pandemic and the people traveling are immunized, I'm much more comfortable with it. So soon, but not yet. Uh, CDC guidelines state that you can receive the COVID-19 vaccine after COVID infection if 24 hours without symptoms and after the isolation quarantine period, typically 10 days. Any reason to delay in children wait two weeks or a month after COVID infection? You know, it's a great question. Uh, again, I can only give you opinion. Um, anecdotally, I've certainly received um, 
uh, comments that people who've very recently had COVID and get immunized don't feel well. And so in my opinion, I might stay with the two week after and, and two weeks to 90 days in that gap area. I don't have any data to show that that's correct. There's not been a randomized trial of immunizing post-COVID people immediately or waiting two weeks and seeing if the side effects are less or more. I don't have those data. Anecdotally, I tend to wait two weeks uh, because of the reports I've received from some patients who haven't felt well right after COVID getting immunized. To that, uh, John, if you had infection, do you need one dose or two doses of the vaccine? Um, at the moment, the recommendation is two doses, but I will say there were some data over the last few months that suggest one dose would be adequate. But, you know, this is all a little hazy right now as variants come in and the more neutralizing antibody required. So I, I think right now I would stay with the two doses because it's going to really get the titers up to where we want them to be post-immunization. And remember, there are some data suggesting the vaccines actually induce longer lasting and higher titers of neutralizing antibody than mild COVID in some people. So there's some good reasons to immunize and use the two doses. Uh, John, for you also, what kind of PPE should a primary care pediatrician's office wear at this point? They have all been immunized um, and they've been wearing surgical masks over N95, face shields, hair covering and gowns. First off, I would defer to the Connecticut Department of Public Health's recommendations on that. I don't know what they're going to do in terms of change. Common sense would suggest you're going to continue to wear a mask and eye protection. But, I mean, does it need to be full PPE? Probably not, unless you do a high-risk procedure. And that would be something that would be aerosolizing. So right now, I'd probably sit tight. Let's see what the data show and let's see what the Connecticut DPH suggestions are going to be to answer that question in the coming weeks. I bet you they do make some changes in their suggestions. Um, from Neil Stein, can you comment on the breakthrough infections, uh, post-vaccine infections? Now, you know, it's a great question, uh, breakthrough infections. So first off, it's very small numbers. I, as I recall, there were some very recent data was 0.02% immunized were having some breakthroughs. And remember, no vaccine is 100% effective. In fact, the pediatric data were astounding, no cases. Uh, but these are very effective vaccines. So there are going to be some breakthroughs and there'll be small numbers. And remember, no, uh, th these vaccines probably don't provide lifelong protection. So I have no doubt as we get toward the winter months, there'll be some waning immunity and a booster shot, in my opinion, will probably be required in the winter and it'll pull in some of the variants as well. So breakthrough is very uncommon. Um, there is a small number of people who are getting breakthrough infections. And by the way, most of them are very mild and, and have not resulted in hospitalizations. Not all, but most. Um, this is a very interesting comment from Amanda Begley. I'm extremely upset about the change in CDC recommendations. Currently, it is quite easy to see who's, who's uh, anti-mask and unlikely to be vaccinated. My children are all under 12 and two are under two and unable to safely mask. Where does this policy leave these children? How do we continue to enforce masking in young children when many of their parents will be throwing away their masks? Of course, my very young children are extremely unlikely to get severely ill. How do we move, move forward? It's a great, great comment. Great comment, a great question. And again, I, I would approach it with sort of common sense. I, I think um, in a family where, uh, and in fact, my family, because I'm a grandparent, all the adults are immunized and the two and a half year old is not, we are traveling and meeting together as our family pod. We are not going out to crowded indoor areas uh, with our unimmunized grandson, but we would go to the beach where it's outdoors. 
and, and stay away, keep our pods separate and try to stay away. So I think moving forward, we're going to have to manage it that way. Outdoors uh, activities, well, we're not in 500 people, but outdoor activities in a potted family who are all immunized are going to work. Probably I wouldn't bring vulnerable young children into a crowded indoor mall where half the people aren't wearing masks and you don't know who's immunized. So common sense. But I agree. Um, it has created uh, some confusion. And I mentioned to you earlier, my preference would have been that it be based on community spread numbers and immunization numbers, but it is what it is. Um. This is for both of you, and this is the last comment and question. Um, there are data beginning to show that surgery post-COVID should be delayed at least seven weeks due to increased mortality. I think, John, you touched upon this. Um, could this be a thrombotic event? Uh, would it make sense to do certain hematologic blood parameters before surgery in those who have had COVID? So that's, uh, so if you can address that. Uh, that's a very, that's a, actually a very good point. Um, and I think you're you're probably right. It is, it would make sense to, check as we check it's the recommendation to check those labs on inpatients perhaps it should be the recommendation to check that within if a patient needs surgery um, close to their COVID infection to just check those coagulation factors in CBC and make sure things are looking okay let me, let me nuance that um, what I would also suggest I would say remember in that paper um, uh, there were after seven weeks there was no higher incidence of mortality so if you wait seven to eight weeks it's fine but I agree, in emergency surgery, and it's one week after COVID or two weeks after COVID, I, I, I completely agree. I, think, I guess I'd want to know whether there's any indication uh, of predisposition to thrombus formation in that recently infected individual who's got to move to emergency surgery. And I've actually not seen that recommendation yet, so I, I think it's a great point. So we, we must finish, uh, although I, I, you know, two more comments uh, from Arthur Blumer. Common sense is not very common, so thank you. I agree with you. I think we've seen that in this country in, this, in the past uh, uh, 16 months, but, but a lot of common sense also in ingenuity. And, and Dr. Lau, of course, a great question. There's an option to run the professional meetings on a cruise ship with a requirement that all participants are fully immunized. So Cheng, if you're going to sponsor that, let us know, and uh, we will all go on your cruise ship. The Lao cruise ship is what we'll call it, or the or the love cruise ship. The love ship, right? The Lao ship. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for joining. Just as a reminder, we on on Tuesday, um, the grand rounds that was supposed to be last week uh, is going to be done. We had some technical problems with Colorado time. And uh, so we will have a specific grand rounds. I looked at the slides. It looks really fabulous about the issue of allergy to COVID vaccines. I mean, this is an expert, world expert in this area. We'll have some common sense recommendations for all of us. So tune in for grand rounds at eight o'clock on Tuesday. Uh, very, very important. We will have a, a holiday break on the 28th uh, for the, you know, just because it's the holiday. Uh, and then on June 4th, we have the biannual Joint Pediatric Symposium with our new Vance partners. I look forward to meeting with you on that day. It starts at 8 o'clock. Uh, there are two, two speakers, uh, and we're planning to, uh, you know, hopefully bring Dr. Shriver in at, as the third speaker at the end of those. And, and, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's uh, I'm sorry. 10 15. Yes. On the date is June 4th. June 4th. So June 4th is the next COVID update from me and us. And tentatively at 10.15 in the morning. So yeah, mark, that's your calendars, mark your calendars, it won't be 8 o'clock that morning. It won't be 8 o'clock that morning. We'll send you the information. But but for now, enjoy your weekend. It's going to be nice. Uh, be out there. Be safe. And, you know, close your bubble and get your kids immunized if you can. Bye-bye. <laughs>